0: A number of years ago, right when I was first starting out in the ministry, um, I bought a guitar because I really wanted to learn how to play. And I paid for lessons. I was very passionate about it. I justified the money that I spent on the guitar and the lessons because I had this idea at the time that, you know what, I could preach or I could lead worship. That's what I was thinking. I said, I'll just do both. And so whatever church the Lord led me to, um, if they needed somebody to lead worship, I could do it. If they needed somebody to preach, I could preach. That was my thinking at the time. And when I first got this guitar, let me tell you, I put it on a stand right in our living room. And the, the last thing I did before I went to bed was play the guitar. The first thing I did was when I woke up is play the guitar. And any opportunity I had throughout the day, I would play the guitar. It was always close by. I would grab it. And uh, after a little while, I got pretty good with about two chords. That was a... Uh, I was pretty awesome with those two or three chords. Uh, we're not gonna talk about my voice. We're not gonna talk about my rhythm, which is little. And, uh, but those two or three chords, I, I could do it. But you know what? After a while, as time went on, playing that guitar every day just wasn't nearly as exciting to me as when I first got it. Eventually, I stopped messing with it all the time. I, I would only pick it up a couple days a week I would often go to bed, not even think about it. I'd go through a whole day or two, not think uh, about it. And soon, I wasn't even messing with it at all. Weeks would go by and I, I wouldn't play it at all. And, and so my wife finally put it into a closet. And and I guess it was a good, good move on her part. I understand where she's coming from. If you're not ever gonna play it, it doesn't need to be in my living room. Okay, any wives can relate to that? And so she put it in the closet and eventually, I sold that guitar, but not before it spent the better part of the next 14 years in the closet, okay? I think it's safe to say, and I'm making, I believe, a safe assumption about the people who are in this room today. I think it's safe to say that all of us have in some closet somewhere in our house a forgotten passion located there. Now, maybe that's some old exercise DVDs. Does that ring a bell? Anybody got some of those in a closet? How many of you got a box of pictures? And you're like, one day I'm going to scrapbook these things. And then you never got to it. Some of you are like, yeah, that's me. You ever started a book, and then now that book is in the closet because you got a couple chapters in and you just didn't finish it, and I'm not trying to come down on anybody because I'm a personal believer that not everything we start is honestly worth finishing. I've picked up plenty of books and I started reading and nope, that's not worth finishing. I'm not gonna invest the time. Um, but here's my point. And, and, and why I'm telling you this is because I see this kind of stuff when I read chapter 19 of the story. But my point is this, don't ever allow God to be put in your storage closet of forgotten passions. That's not where God belongs. And God is either gonna be the big thing, or he is nothing. God is either gonna be the big thing, or he is nothing. This week, we're moving into chapter 19 of the story, and that is the overarching theme that I, I see all over this chapter. God is going to be the big thing, or he's going to be nothing, and that resonates in my life, and I hope it resonates in your life as well. Please turn over to page 263 in your storybooks. That's where we're going to be today, and if this is your first time with us, we are so thrilled that you are here. Let me tell you what we're doing. We're going through um, a series called The Story, which basically means we We are going from genesis to revelation over the course of 31 weeks together we're using this resource here called the story which is large portions of the bible word for word arranged chronologically arranged in 31 chapters and it has been a really good series for us as a church i love it when i hear stories from from you all of like i've never understood the bible till now or like, I never understood how this related to this. And I see dots are being connected that weren't connected before. I'll tell you, as your pastor, that blesses my heart a lot. I love hearing your stories of what God is doing through the story. And so we're going through this. And I'll tell you, and if this is your first time and you're like, I want to learn the Bible, I want to know what the Bible's all about, I invite you to join us. It's very simple. Get your own copy of the story out at the welcome table. It's our gift to you. It's our invitation to come back next week. Just start reading. We'd love for you to come join us. But here's where we're at in the story. We left off last week, and and the Israelites have been hauled off into captivity, and that is where they will spend the next 70 years and outside of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who we learned about last week, it's pretty much all dark. Those are the few, these four guys are like the only bright spots in this 70 year captivity when they're away from their homeland, which we know is the promised land, Jerusalem. And here we are, seven decades later, in chapter 19, they've been in a dark tunnel. But in chapter 19, we begin to see that there's this little light at the end of the dark tunnel, this little light, this little glimmer of hope, and that's how chapter 19 begins. So if you would, page 263, this is the same as Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus... King of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judea. Do you understand what he's saying? This is not a God-fearing man. This is not a leader of the Israelites. But he says, God appointed me to build this temple. Interesting. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judea, or Judah, excuse me, and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. This, my friends, is an incredible turn of events. Seventy years in captivity, and here you have this king. He's an ungodly man. He's, he's, not, he's not a follower. His name is Cyrus, and he basically says it's time for the Israelites to go home. That's what he said. Seventy years, it's time for you guys to go home. We know from the Bible that God prompted King Cyrus to make this decision, Um, and what's truly amazing though beyond that even is is Cyrus says you guys go home, you build your temple and I'll pay for it (laughs) he's I'm going to pay for it for you too so you guys just get on down the road, here's some resources and go do what you're supposed to do reading this for me, is a great reminder that ultimately God is still in control, that God has a plan. He never lost sight of his plan. we've been referring to God's plan as his upper story. That's the language we've been using for it. God has his upper story. He's got this vision of what he's doing with people to bring all people into his family, where he can dwell with them and have a relationship with them. That's all that God ever wanted. And as we've read the story, everything that God has done is motivated by his deep love For people and this strong desire to have a relationship with them. Every last part of it. Now here's something that's very important for us to be reminded of um, at this part of the story. Concerning the Israelites and their release from captivity. God had already made a promise a hundred years prior to their release that he would let them go. And he told us this through the prophet Isaiah. So 100 years before all of this, God said, I'm gonna allow this to happen to Israel, but I'm gonna let them go. But even with that prophecy, and all of this happening ahead of time, the people did not listen. And they missed this remarkable promise about King Cyrus. Now you don't need to turn there, but I'm gonna ask you to turn your attention to the screen behind me, because i want to read some portions out of Isaiah chapter 45. Because in Isaiah 45, it essentially details God's plan for the Israelites to return home. But this plan was laid out 100 years before it actually happened. So this is prophecy. This is, this is a prophecy about something that would happen 100 years later. They completely missed it, but we can see it. This is Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1. Some of you, this is going to blow your hair back if you still got any. Are you ready? Isaiah 45, this is one of God's messengers. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus. You you may need to underline that in your storybooks. Actually, we're not reading out your storybooks right now, am I? Imaginary, recircle circle in your mind. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right... Hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their, of their armor, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. What's so remarkable about that, you might say? This is Cyrus being named by name in a prophecy before he's ever born. That's what's so amazing about this. 100 years before the Israelites are released from captivity, and this prophecy is so specific that he names him by name. He's not done. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. For the sake of Jacob, my servant of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name. And bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have no, not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Do you realize that the Lord is laying out this thing here, this idea that his upper story has gone nowhere. His upper story is still in place. He hasn't forgotten. This is still his master plan. And and he's like saying, I'm going to do this with or without the Israelites. I will draw all people unto me. This is God making a declaration. And he can use even an ungodly king who hasn't even been born yet, name him by name 100 years earlier to, his, to allow his plan to unfold. This is the kind of God we serve. He goes on to say in verse 11, this is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and its maker concerning things to come do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hand stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry host. I'm in control. That's what God says. I'm in control. And then finally in verse 13, God says through his prophet, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. Now that just kind of makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up a little. Did you know that biblical prophecy was so specific? Did you know that? For the people who want to make the claim that the Bible is nothing more than a bunch of fix, fictitious stories with a good moral message need to explain to me how this prophecy then fits into their viewpoint. That something could be written 100 years ahead of time, name people by name who aren't even born yet, and then come true exactly how it is written. I'll, I'll tell you how that happens. Because the Bible's true. True. That's how that happens. And that's just one prophecy. What else did Isaiah say? Isaiah had a lot to say. God spoke through him on a lot of things. Do you know that that Isaiah had a lot to say about the coming Messiah? If this one prophecy about something that was going to take place a hundred years into the future came true in every detail, what other prophecies did Isaiah make that came true? Can I list off a few? All of these are about Jesus. Isaiah said that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Did you know that? Hundreds of years before Jesus came, this was prophesied. The Messiah would be called Emmanuel. The Messiah would be rejected by his own people. The Messiah would be called a Nazarene. Now we're getting specific. The Messiah would bring light to Galilee. The Messiah would speak in parables. Did you know all this was prophesied? The Messiah would be sent to heal the brokenhearted. The Messiah would be silent before his accusers. Have you read the Gospels? The Messiah would be spit upon and struck. The Messiah would be crucified with criminals. The Messiah would be buried with the rich. Jesus was put in a rich man's tomb. And the Messiah would be a sacrifice for sins. Every single one of these prophecies from the book of Isaiah came true. How is that possible? Well, there's only one explanation that the Bible is true. And if the Bible is true about that, what else is it true about? So just like God had foretold a hundred years before, the Israelites, they are freed from captivity. That's what chapter 19 is all about. And now they start to head home. And we learn from the Bible that there was about 50,000 Israelites who decided to leave their land of captivity and make the 900-mile journey back to Jerusalem. And they went there with this renewed sense of mission, this renewed sense of passion. And you know what the first thing they did when they got there They got out an old copy of the law because they didn't know what it said any longer. And they got an old copy of the law of Moses that contained all of the laws that that governed the people. We're going all the way back to the time of wondering. Do you remember the 40 years when God established his tabernacle and gave the people all these guidelines for how to live in relationship with him? They got that book out. And they began to learn. And they started with God's priorities. And they had to reacquaint themselves with all the things that God wanted them to do after 70 years of captivity and, and, and several centuries away from, follow, from, from not following him before. So they did that. And then the next thing they did, the Bible tells us is they rebuilt the altar of the Lord and they started making sacrifices on it. Why would they do this? Well, it's a direct connection to what they were learning from the law of Moses. And, and it's important because they learned when they read God's word that they needed to make an atonement for their sins. And how God set that up is through animal sacrifices, the shedding of blood as a means for atonement to be right before God. So they started doing that. And then guess what else they did? They, begin, they began to work on rebuilding God's house his temple. This is the temple where where God dwelt with people. It's right smack in the middle of Jerusalem. It's up on the Temple Mount. It's a physical reminder that every time somebody went up to the Temple Mount and they saw the temple, it was a reminder that God dwells with his people, that his presence is there. And so they began to rebuild the temple. So do you start to see that we're going backwards to how God wanted it? Do you see they're starting to be reminded that God says, hey, if we're going to do life together, we got to live by some guidelines, how to treat other people and how to treat me. So they got after that. Then they started to build an altar for the atonement of their sins because sins needed to be atoned for. And then they began to build God's house so that God would dwell with them physically in their presence. It's very clear when you read in the Bible that getting the the temple built was gonna be a huge undertaking. Do you recall from a few chapters ago when the first temple was built by Solomon just how many years it took to get that accomplished and how big of a project? Now this temple will not be quite as big and glorious as that one, but it's quite an undertaking. But they made it their top priority. But what's true for them is also true for us often that whenever we set out and attempt to do something really big for god opposition will be there won't it Whenever you do something really big for God, there will be opposition. And they set out to do this really big thing for God, and they got opposition. Um, There were people from all over the area that tried to stop this project. Day after day, they, they created interference for the Israelites. But you know what? They just stayed fast and focused. It seemed like nothing would get in their way on this incredible mission. This group that came back from captivity looked fired up for God. At least... For a few years, and then it started to happen again. Little by little, they lost their focus. The Bible talks about how they began to turn their attention to other things, less attention on building God's house, more attention on building their own personal projects maybe they got a little burnout building this temple maybe they were tired of of carving stones and creating things We, we don't really know maybe they just started thinking about their own stuff and their own priorities their own farms their own businesses their own houses but whatever one by one people stopped showing up at the construction site to build God's temple God's big thing had become a small thing to his people And I bet you they never intended to completely abandon this project. You read the scriptures, it's not like something that happened overnight. I bet they simply got busy doing life They just got busy um, doing their own projects. Maybe they developed this mentality that, you know, we'll come back to it next week. You know, let's get through the weekend, then we'll hit it hard on Monday, and Monday would roll around and they they wouldn't do it. Maybe they thought, you know what, let's get past this month. It's really busy. We'll tackle that next month when the weather's a little better. You know what, maybe the conversation shifted to, let's get the crops in for harvest, and then we'll get back after the temple. A year goes by. And that turns into five years, and that turns into 15 years, and that turns into 16 years. And literally, the temple of God becomes an abandoned construction site. I can just imagine it. Weeds growing up around the foundation, the footers that were poured. Weeds are growing up. You can't see everything. Enough time for the nations around them to look at the temple of God and to draw this conclusion. These guys don't really care about their God. Enough time has gone by for the children of these, of these Israelites that came home from captivity, for the children to make an observation and say, this doesn't seem to be too important to our parents anymore. Long enough for that to happen. God's big thing had become a small thing to his People, and I would say that their passion for rebuilding the temple became very much like my passion for playing guitar. The temple had been put into their storage closets of forgotten passions. That's what happened. And I wonder if any of you can relate. I wonder if any of you in here today are struggling through or have struggled through something very similar with your own relationship with the Lord. Maybe your story looks very much like the Israelites' story. You, at one point in your journey, you were one fired-up saint for the Lord. Maybe that would be a description of you. You were following Jesus... Every single day your friends probably poked fun at you but that did not deter you at all. You had to make some tough decisions regarding some of those friends and some of those relationships but you did it because God was number 1. Nothing could derail your passion for God but then something happened. And it wasn't immediate It was slow, but something happened and your fire for the Lord began to wane and now there are times that you struggle even to get out of bed and find the motivation to make it to church a couple Sundays a month. I've yet to meet the follower of Jesus who deliberately set out to ignore God. I've not met that person, but I have met many who drifted away from their number one passion and allowed something else or everything else to get in the way. That could be your kids. That's right, your kids can, can become a thing that caused you to drift off your passion for Christ. Christ. Maybe that was a new job, or even a transfer, or the demands, or the stress and the struggle that life seems to throw at us. It gets in the way of this precious relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so the big thing that used to be is now the small thing in your life, and it's a forgotten passion that you once had. Maybe you feel like you're going through the motions. I think maybe there's a few of us in here today that can relate very much with what the Israelites are going through. And then it comes to the time where we wake up one day and we're not thinking about our walk with Christ at all. And with the passage of time comes a diminished passion for the Lord. Am I talking to anybody? Sometimes looks like this. Serving becomes a maybe if I can fit it in. Tithing, giving looks more like tipping. Prayer becomes a procedure. Church attendance becomes an obligation. It's not that we forgot about God, it's just we put him in the closet with all those other forgotten passions that we once had. But here's what happens to the Israelites. After 16 years of this forgotten passion that is God's house, the Lord raises up another prophet. God's like, enough of that. And he sends a guy by the name of Haggai to deliver a very important message for God. This message is found on page 266 of your storybooks. And um, Haggai chapter 1 verse 4 is where you find it in the Bible. And we're going to read together seven of the most remarkable verses that you're probably going to come across in quite some time. If you ever want to know how God responds to lethargy or misplaced priorities, these seven verses. Tell you a lot. If you've ever wondered what God does when we make His big thing our small thing, if you ever wonder how God thinks about that or looks at those things or what He might do in response, then look no further than these seven verses. Here's God's playbook to get us back on point. It says this: Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? God's calling them out about misplaced priorities and forgotten passions. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little you eat but never have enough, you drink but never have your fill, you put on clothes but are not warm, you earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Can you relate? This is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, I turned out to, I turned out to be little. Or it turned out to be little. You, what you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. God's saying, my big thing became your small thing. And you wonder why nothing's going well. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and all the labor of your hands. You know, when we refuse to pay attention to God and stick him in a closet full of our forgotten passions, he has a way of getting our attention. And I could not speak to all the ways that God gets our attention. Sometimes they're quite scary. An unexpected crisis in life. A drastic... Could these be times when God really wants to get your attention. Now friends, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We also live in a heavily broken world. This, this world is cursed, you know that, right? The Bible says that. It won't be right till Jesus returns. Sometimes we suffer the consequences of living in a broken, sinful place. Full of disease and sickness and things that aren't right and sin. And then there are times when God allows things to come into our lives because he's trying to wake you up. It seems very clear in the New Testament what this is all about. James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote about this in the book of James. He says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops... Do you know what else he's saying? It's not an accident. There's a reason. Because God's a very on-purpose God. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. God withheld. What he's, God withheld his blessings from the Israelites because they had stuffed them in a closet Of forgotten passions And so God withheld the blessing Um, Randy Frazee um, You'll notice his name is on the front cover Of your storybook He's one of the guys that helped put this together He has a quote and I love it He says this When our priorities become more important than God's Our lives are marked by futility I believe there's a lot of truth In what he is saying In that quote God loves you and he refuses to let you drift away. And so sometimes hard things come because it's like God saying, I refuse to let you go. And you know, I wonder how many of us feel the same way about, about our loved ones and our friends, like, we're not gonna let you go. And wonder if somebody hasn't shown up in a while. Have you called them up and say, We miss you, we love you, we're not letting you go. Where are you? You see a brother, or sister engaging in some things, like, I'm not going to let you go. This is God's way of telling the Israelites, I'm not letting you go. I'm not letting you go. You're you're hearing God's heart for these people. I believe there's a lot of truth in what is happening here, and it relates very much to to our, our day. Well, you know what? After Haggai's message... Guess what the people of Israel did? They're like, oh, you're right. And they got right back to building the temple, and God once again was dwelling among his people. Do you know what? They took this forgotten passion out of the closet, dusted it off, and made the big thing the big thing. And they got right. And I wonder how many of us today need to also do the same thing. You know what's in your closet. You know what forgotten passions are there. What is God telling you to do? Have you sensed a drift in your faith? Have you sensed a lack of passion, a lack of desire? Have you stuffed God in the closet? Has this big thing become your small thing? Only you can answer that. C.S. Lewis said this, and I love this quote. He says, if we put first things first, we get the second things thrown in. But if we put second things first, we lose both the first and the second thing. I think he's trying to say, in another way, what Jesus had already said in the book of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said this, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness in all of these things will be given to you as well. What are these things? We've got to read all of chapter six to learn what those things are. But all the things we desire to have and the things we work for and the things that get pushed in front of God. Jesus is saying, if you will just seek me first, all these other things will happen for you too. I think it's okay to lose a passion for playing a guitar. I'm at peace with it. I sleep just fine. But don't ever allow God to be put in the closet of a lost passion. God is either the big thing or he's nothing.